Hi, I'm Cody Elaine Oliver. I created the popular Black Love docuseries with my husband after seeing the lack of Black people in media and entertainment in happy, loving relationships. We were actually being told there was a Black marriage crisis. So I asked Black people who were married what it takes to make their marriage work. And after more than 200 interviews, I've heard it all. So buckle up and enjoy getting the full story directly from the couples themselves. This is Black Love, The Interviews. So we met at Georgetown University when I was a freshman and Lisa was a sophomore. And we met the first week of school, the second or third day. And I came into the cafeteria and it was a typical college cafeteria where you go get your food and then you pop out and you have to choose a seat. And she was standing where you popped out and letting people know where they needed to sit. And she let me know that I needed to sit with the black folks. So she said, you sit over there. The reason why that was challenging for me is because I was raised in a religious Jewish community. So I popped out actually looking for the Hillel table and that clearly wasn't an option. So in my mind, I was like, okay, well, it's just one day. I guess I'll go sit with those people. Uh, <laughs> and that kind of went on um, for quite some time where there was a struggle between what the expectations were of a very small black community at Georgetown. And she was, I always say, the queen of the black people and what my expectations were arriving at Georgetown. For me, I was already struggling because there were so many people who weren't Jewish. So that's how we met. And we often say that when we married, we were the first married couple ever featured in the Georgetown alumni magazine. Um, the gay first couple. gay couple ever. And it was a week before reunion. And we went to reunion. And not a single person at reunion said, you guys are gay. But every single person said, how did the two of you end up together? All my friends said, you married her? Right. And all my friends said, you married her? I'm like, yep. Because our dislike or actual animosity for each other was obvious when we were on campus. So I think for me, going off to college and being at Georgetown and particularly being there during apartheid, et cetera, it was clear, it was probably the second time in my life where I really saw a clear distinction between black and white. I went to a private school. I was the only kid bust. Um, I would pull up in the short bus and all these Jaguars and Rolls Royces. So I think class had been more of an issue. And at Georgetown, it was both of those. And I came in to, quote unquote, the largest class of black people, which was 100. But 100 out of 1,000 is nothing. And so I think for me at Georgetown, academically, for the, for the majority, most of us were doing well. But socially, we were struggling. We couldn't get access to resources. We weren't divesting from South Africa. So I think many of us now, we look back and we laugh, we were considered black militants. So I was accepted early decision. I had met my room, two of my kind of friends during that time. We all agreed to live in the same dorm. We were on the same floor. We grabbed our fourth friend and then we lived together forever, even when we graduated. And we had become the leaders on campus. I think some of that was because there was a gentleman named Gordon Chavez who ran the Center for Minority Affairs who kind of set us up with leaders. So my mentors were head of the BSA, head of the NAACP, had lived in the Black House, and we followed that course. We were head of the NAACP, BSA, and we lived in the Black House. And we became known as student leaders, but most importantly, Black student leaders, because we were always trying to fight for causes, kids getting kicked out for the wrong reasons, the N-word being spray painted. So that's just how we were. And I think we were definitely the privileged kids, but we I had no problem going to the dean saying, this is just not right. Um, and so that's how I got, I've got my persona. And then here she came and she had a very different 
persona. But I think until then, many of us came in with this strong sense of solidarity because we had all, for the most part, come from predominantly white institutions, had decided that we could survive if we found our own, and that's how we were going to make it through this predominantly white school. And I, you know, I think something that that of course we've learned much later on in our lives is that we had a lot in common growing up. We were raised by single moms whose priority was our education. And at that time, because we were raised in the late 60s and early 70s in terms of grammar school, the best schools were white schools. And they both worked their tails off to put us into white environments. So what's interesting is that we had this very similar upbringing, but we responded to it in different ways. My sense was that when Melissa got to Georgetown, she decided that she was going to be very militant, pay attention, make sure everybody knew what wasn't working. I got to Georgetown, and in fact, one of the ways that I got in was when I, well, actually, I had already been accepted. When we were going on our tour, there were, sl- there were pictures of slaves in the president's office, and I wrote a letter to the president of the university saying I would not attend unless they took the pictures down. So I think I had a, a quieter sense of standing up for what was right. It was clear to me that I wanted to be in an environment that knew who I was and was going to accept me, but I had very little experience in being part of a larger black community. But in many ways, I was doing things in a way that made sense for me. So it was new for me to see so many people of color banded together, and it was uncomfortable. And at the time, because we were a year apart in school, it seemed very comfortable for her. And so I think part of it was my feeling like, you know, why, why, why do you have to go about it in that way? There are a lot of ways to make change. And she saw very little of how I was making change. And, you know, as you know, this is a story uh, that's told over and over again in the black community, right? Race, shades of blackness, economics, how one is raised, what expectations are. And I think we had a lot of misunderstanding of those expectations. Um, But I also didn't have a lot of patience. My mom was someone who was the person at PTA that stood up and started yelling and saying, why aren't all the black kids? kind of getting equal treatment. She fought to get me into school and to skip a grade because they wanted to keep me back for all the wrong reasons. So I think for me, the image of how you got what you wanted was you had to be willing to fight the system. And I will be honest, I think I was looking for not having to fight the system, but I realized academic life was no different. And and despite what we see on TV is Georgetown, all these black guys playing ball, they're probably the only ones. And the rest of us still are bottom of the barrel, fight for dorms, fight for stuff. Um, And I think also after the time I left my freshman year, we had also made friends with other people. So I think the relationship shifted. So the gentleman who's the president now was dean of students, who was also our next door neighbor. And so I think I realized that for me, there was a reinforcement of we were outspoken. Now people know who we are. Now I don't have to yell anymore. I can just get a meeting. But that there was some value in making sure that people saw you were heard. I'm sorry, I was going to say, and what's funny is that my mother was that same mother. And my response to that was that I didn't want to yell. That I wanted to, I knew the change was necessary, but I wanted to do it through art and interpretation and giving people one-on-one experiences with me and who I was and and who I am. Yeah, see, we never became friends. I I want to be clear about that. Like, she would come Mm -hmm. to our parties, but it wasn't like... So did everybody else on campus, and we did throw the best parties. Um, So I think, like, I knew who she was, and we had, like, Minority Student Weekend, and she was part of that. But it was kind of like, yeah, that's who she is. And so I would say, yeah, no, we weren't Which is probably a big difference also, because I didn't come into the school through Minority Student anything. And so Gordon Chavez, who she speaks of, 
had nothing to do with me, never introduced himself to me, didn't know who I was, and wasn't concerned or interested in who I was. So there was a community that was brought in through this sort of minority. Well, no, that's not true. So, so that, just in all fairness, because that wasn't the group we were brought in either. I, I know you weren't brought in that right. way, so but somehow there, there was not, a community a, of there's people. Like, there were three different groups, let's be clear. So there was her group, people of color, that didn't check the box for the university, and they were going to be okay. There were those of us who checked the box. I checked the box. It, no, not literally checked the box. Oh. <laughs> then there were those, I said, you checked, that didn't check the box for the university. Uh, and they okay. just assumed we were going to be okay. Then there were those of us who I think, they thought we were going to be okay, but they wanted to make sure we were extra special okay. And then there were those who they knew needed real help in terms of academic remediation. And I want to make that, and I make that distinction because it's all a partly why it's not surprising that we never really blended, right? Because there were those folks who went off to do their thing. There are a group of us who went on to be student leaders. And then there were others who, I would say, were there and had their own struggles, but they also didn't separate. They separated themselves because they had spent the pre-summer together. So I, I paint that to say that our lack of friendship was somewhat normal because it wasn't like there was this homogenous black community. We did not, by any means, all get along. There was no kumbaya. So there was definite overlap in our careers, and we were both in and out of the D.C. area, and we both were running very successful nonprofits early, soon after getting out of Georgetown. Um, and so sometimes physically we were in the same space. I would have meetings in her office building. The mayor honored us both and gave us funding for our programs. Um, I ran a program that had um, an event called Tomorrow's Leaders Today. Melissa was one of the leaders who we honored. And so we kept sort of overlapping over the years in that way. And then again, professionally, I was doing um, transitional leadership for nonprofit organizations. And she was on the board of an organization that was looking for some transitional leadership. And my resume came across the table. And because in my cover letter, I mentioned Georgetown and they knew I was African-American, of course, knowing that Melissa bleeds Hoya blue, they said, well, you must That's know true. her. But in my letter, I had mentioned that I was gay. And so... <laughs> I said, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I said, I know somebody who has that name, but I don't know who that is because she was not gay at Georgetown. So I really can't speak to that person. I, I think I know who she is, but I'm not really sure. And she hadn't sent a picture. So I was like, yeah, I don't know. Is, is she black? Like, did I, do I really know her? So then we went online. I was like, oh, yeah, I know her. I was like, oh, damn, I didn't know she was gay. Okay, all right. Okay, good for her. <laughs> so I got a one-line email from her saying, I'll be calling you Monday for an interview for this position. Well, I got the email on a Thursday. I was literally moving Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I remember the only thing set up in my entire house was my desk, my computer, and my phone because I knew that I had this interview. Um, but I had also called, when I got the email, called my best friend, Monica, and said, you'll never guess who's going to interview me for this position. And she was like, I don't know. And I said, Melissa Bradley. And she's like, who's Melissa Bradley? <laughs> so of course I had to tell her the whole backstory. And I was like, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know what to do. And she's like, well, just do, do you. Just do the interview, see how it goes. And I, of course, also looked her up and sensed that perhaps she was family. And so- yeah, I was out, I was out by then. And there, so, there were pictures out there that Cody yeah. was out. Yep. And so I think our, our conversation was, friendly, but we had never been friends. So I think we were both trying to play nice. Um, I was trying to do an interview. But I think what was interesting is I think I think this is how I think our beginnings are different. 
I tend to be all about business, right? So during that militant phase, it was like, it was really about business and I separate out my personal life. But the thing is really good at is, as part of business and getting to know people, you're social and you get to learn about them. So I will say that because I felt at some point, I was like, wait a minute, I, I just lost my interview. And now we're talking about each other. So I did get through all my professional questions. She's like, well, you know, is there anything else? And I was like, no, not really, we're good. <laughs> and she's like, so what are you up to? And then they were just like another hour and a half. And I was like, I just took over my call. <laughs> I think I just lost. So anyway, yes. So, so we reconnected that way. Um, I ended up getting the position, and uh, she was she was the financial lead on the board. And there were a whole series of financial concerns. And so I called her and said, "Listen, I'm going to come up to New York. I need six hours to meet." And she was like, six hours?" I said, "I have 175 questions about the finances." I said, "And then." I want three hours just to go out to dinner personally, nothing but business. And she said, reluctantly, I said yes. <laughs> she said yes. Okay. So, oh, oh, oh no, no, absolutely. I had 175 questions. She really did. I really had, and we she sat really there. Did. And went through every single question. Yes. But of course, leading up to this, my best friend Monica comes over again, right? And she's helping me pack for the trip. And she's like, this is great. You're going up. I know you're excited. Remember, you've got six hours of questions. I know you're excited about the personal piece. But she looked at me and she said, look me in the eye and make me one promise. And I was like, okay. And she said, I will not. Were you the chair of the board? I always I was, say this, I right? Was, she yes. said, repeat after me. I will not fuck the chair of the board. <laughs> I was like, I will not, you know, sort of laughing. So of course, I'm packing. I'm, I'm the next morning. I'm going to the train. She calls me and she says, you know, repeat after me, and I say it. She calls me on the train. I say it. I get to the meeting location, and, and I, I had just come back from Florida. Literally, had just gotten off a plane. I said, let's meet in the lobby of the W Hotel in New York City in Times Square, which is not uncommon for me because it's very professional. I have business meetings there, but I was chilling. I had on like some three-quarter lanes, a linen shirt, and I was like, my God, I'm spending six hours, whatever, I'm just trying to like get through this. A beautiful tan. Because I was in Miami, yes. So I'm still on the phone with Monica, right? I'm like, okay, I'm here, I'm about to start this, I'm just checking in, and she, and she says, okay, say it one more time. I will not fuck the chair of the board, and I see her across the room, and I said, I'm gonna fuck the chair of the board, and I closed the phone. <laughs> I didn't know any of this, I didn't know any of this. No any of this. Which, by the way, it was not my style, but I was, and, and, and didn't happen, right? But just in that moment, I saw her and I thought, okay, I've got to be honest. Like, I might have had this thing in my head about her, but now that I'm seeing her in person, you know, I, clearly there's an attraction. So we had our six hour meeting and then? Went to dinner and then I was, I mean, I'm chivalrous, so I said, well, I'll walk you back because it was raining. And I said, I'll walk you back to your hotel. And I said, you know, I'll have an umbrella. So we walked out, we kept on chatting. And she was like, why don't you come in? And I kept looking at my watch and I was like, all right, I can come in for a little bit. And we went into her room and I sat on one side of the room and she sat on the other side. And we were just, and it wasn't like, I have to be honest, in my mind, there was nothing. It was like, this is a good conversation. And you know, she's a Hoya. And it was, I think many of the misconceptions we both had about each other, we kind of like, we served so like, yeah, this was going on. Here's what's happening, so-and-so. And I will admit, I do bleed Hoya blue. So I was thinking like, how do we get you back involved? Do you can be a good Hoya? And then at some point in time, it took a turn, but I think you were responsible for that turn. And I had a prior engagement and um, I missed it <laughs> because it got late. And finally, I don't even know what happened, but we were just chit-chatting. 
She had changed her clothes like two different times. And finally- One time I put on my PJs, a conga and a tank top, right. which to this day I still wear when I go to sleep. And then at one point, I don't know what it was, but something made me look at my phone. And I, I said, oh shit. And she said, what's the matter? I said, well, I technically had somebody come in to see me and I blew it. They had been hanging out for hours because I did not look at my phone. So I literally said, I have to go. And I ended up leaving. That was it. So I got on the train, went back to DC. Next day, was writing a follow-up email, very business-like. And at the end, I'd written this kind of slightly flirtatious paragraph. And I had it on my screen and I was thinking, do I send it? Do I not send it? Do I send it? I'm not sure. What do I do? And you know, it was sort of having meetings in between. I'd come back and look at my computer and then the doorbell rang at the office and in walked this guy with a dozen roses. And it was signed, Heart From Her. And I pushed send. Well, but also, so during that time, we started, to, well, she started probing about personal lives. And I said, I wasn't really seeing anybody in particular, although I did have this friend coming up who subsequently had to get a hotel room for because she was not mad at me. And, and she was saying, you know, she's dating multiple people and just kind of hanging out or whatever. So it was signed my name and it said, not one of the others. And so that was, because I wasn't sure, but I figured, what the hell? I know, but I will say like that, So, but it was professional, but I will admit that there was something in the taxi, like when I left and I was in the taxi and I was panicking, I was like, oh my God, I just like stood this woman up like for three hours and now she's like riding around the city. And I was like, hmm, why did I stand her up? And so I think there was something in my mind. And so once I got her situated and I paid for the hotel and I was like, I realized you may never talk to me again. And I went home and that was then a long taxi ride from Midtown to Harlem. I was like, hey, no, Alessandra's not that bad. She looks good. She seems nice. Yeah, okay, sure. What the hell? Let's just see what happens. Because six hours, I, you know, that's just a lot of time. I mean, so I don't, I'm not the most social person in the world unless I have to be. So in New York, like, and I saw this to be professional. Like with my friends, we hang out, we club, we do whatever. But professionally, I give people an hour and that's it. And so when she said six hours, I mean, the organization was in trouble, but I was like, damn, is it really that in trouble? And I had called to the woman saying, I'm about to have this meeting at six hours, like what the hell? And it really did warrant that time. And the dinner part, I mean, to me, that's New York City. Like I don't cook, I eat every day. So that really wasn't that odd. But I was hesitant about the six hours. I was like, wait, man, I just got back from Miami. Like that's a block of time. And she said like, don't look at your phone. I was like, all right, now you asking a lot, right? I mean, like unless something tragic is happening, of course something bad was happening. But so that's, I think my reluctance was like, a, I don't give anybody that much time. B, it was kind of like, otherwise we can't really meet. And I was like, well, I'm not really big on ultimatums either. So I think that was a challenge. But like I said, it turned out to be like a really nice conversation. So I think in some ways we that have them. That was the hard part, because I had to leave Harlem. I'm sorry, go ahead, you were saying. I'm sorry. I had to leave Harlem, that was yeah. hard. I think it was interesting. I think after that call, things went, like shit hit the fan with the organization. And, but I think things got better with us, so I ended up resigning. It was just not appropriate, it was a conflict. And I think that made things easier. So I think that probably was a three to four week period where it was tough, because I was like, I can't really talk to you that way. And then it was like, okay, I just need to get off. And then again, it was odd, because somebody was like talking on the phone, we probably talked like every day, at night, for hours on end and I was single and I had no kids and I was chilling in Harlem and you came to visit a few times and and I think for me I had just come out of some relations where how old was I 
30, we were 36. 35. 30. So I think for me, I was also thinking like, what am I gonna do, right? Like all of my friends, we were like, okay, we're living in New York City. Regardless of what sex you prefer, your odds are limited. I think there was had been a prior moment where I wanted kids and because of the people I was with, they didn't want them, I had given up on that. But now it was like, hmm, I better hurry up because according to the clock, my time is ticking. And I would say there's still really good friends of mine who aren't married yet, but we were all just kind of going through that. So I think it opened myself up more. And we started talking and we found out we had a lot more in common. Um, I think the kids thing was a little, a little scary to me. Um, not that I don't like kids, it was just, I was like, well, this, you know, you watch all these shows and you hear it's very complicated. And then we agreed that I was gonna come down. So when we met, I had four children. So one adopted and then three from a previous marriage. And a shift for us was you were actually in Toronto at the film festival. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right? Yes. And uh, we were having With our... somebody else, but yes, yes, yes. And we were having our nightly call. And she said, you sound a little down. What are you down about? Yeah. And I said, well, Ayo, who is our now 19-year-old son, starts a new school on Monday. And I said, I hate going because he's much lighter than me. And everybody always treats me like I'm the help. And I hate standing in that schoolyard and they're looking at this little light-skinned kid who they think is white and think that I'm a nanny so none of the other moms talk to me. And it just feels very isolating and frustrating and I don't really want that. I think it was probably Friday or Saturday night we had the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then very late on Sunday night, I got a text from her that said, come pick me up at the airport at 6 a.m. on Monday. And she had shortened her trip and flown in and she said, I don't want you standing in that schoolyard by yourself. So, you know, I think that as a, as a mom, and as a woman, the fact that she heard that and responded and related to that was extraordinary. But I had come down one time before. You had, and she, yeah, no, she had come down, she had met the kids and- And they had them. interrogated me. Yes. Who are you? What are your intentions? I was like- When did you get your period? Right, all, yeah, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you allowed the box, so just calm down. Calm down. They kept turning around the corner. We want to catch you kissing. I was like, could you just go somewhere? But anyway. Uh, yeah. But but I think that that was probably one of the critical moments of of her taking a risk to say that I'm not quite sure how to do this, but I do know what's important to you, and I'm willing to show up and figure it out with you. Um, but what and, else did I come with from Toronto? Yes, well, and for me, it was it was realizing that she was willing to come and learn and be and figure it out. I mean that. that that combination was huge. But she also showed up, so of course I pick her up and she gets in the car with Tiffany's box with a promise ring in it to say that, you know. I was making no commitments, but I was willing to figure this out. Which is fascinating because I love diamonds. And, sh and I think when I remember that day, the fact that she showed up said more than any diamond would ever say. It was the last time she said that. Hey, well, I was going to say, now let's be clear. <laughs> that, that, was that doesn't that come was up one anymore. <laughs> it doesn't come up anymore. But yes, yes, that was it. So a couple months later, it was Yom Kippur. And for Jews all over the world, and particularly religious Jews, Yom Kippur is a day of fasting. Um, but not just fasting. It's a day of total abstinence and quiet. So we don't wear leather, we don't bathe, we don't have sexual relations, we don't read, we do nothing but ask for forgiveness. Some people find it to be in backwards order, but as Jews we celebrate 
the new year, and then we have 10 days of awe. We have to meditate, think about what we've done wrong, and literally ask forgiveness of all the people who we've wronged in that year. And then on Yom Kippur, we present all of that forgiveness to God and say, please give us another chance for one more year. So it's not just that we're not doing any of these things, but it's because we have a lot of work to do that day. And so I had gone to temple and come back, and Melissa had agreed that she was going to also be in that spirit for the day. And so really, you can pray, you can meditate, walk, and talk. That's about all you can do. And so we were sitting on the bed talking, and one of our conversations turned to what did, what do we want our lives to be like, right? That in this, and for me as a Jew, in starting this new year, what did I envision? Um, having these conversations about forgiveness and wiping the slate clean and starting anew, what did we want? And so we unexpectedly had this conversation about our lives and how we saw our lives. Um, and in a moment that, that I always remember as being significant, um, because Melissa has a marshmallow heart that she shields from the world, I remember her saying to me, I think I had asked, well, if you, this is a, one of my favorite questions, if you held the magic wand, you know, what would it look like? And she said, what it would look like is we would have a family and you would stay home and take care of them. And, you know, we would, she would go out and work and we would build this, build this life together. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's what I said. But I have to say, like, I said it and I meant it, but I think for me, there was, there's a, there's, there was a distinction between what you felt and what the right construct was because I did not grow up with successful marriages in my life. My sister's marriage wasn't necessarily successful. My father died when I was young, so I didn't necessarily have any role models. Maybe my role model, we all joke at school, was like we all idolized the Cosby family, which is quite ironic now. But that was what we knew, right? And so I think it was kind of like, yeah, we made that commitment, but also I'd always been out, but not really in tune with the political context of being gay. It was kind of like, okay, now that's great. Still kind of unsure what happens next, but knew that the commitment was there. So there was a gap between that and getting married. Right, so I think we made that commitment and then actually, Monica <laughs> um, comes back into the story. Um, and she um, had done a lot of therapy with people and so she agreed to do at least three months of premarital therapy with us to talk about what does this look like? What does it feel like? Neither of us had good models for marriage growing up in our lives. Um, what did we want? We were both strategists professionally, and so applied some of that to thinking through our lives and drew pictures. We actually, one of the sessions we did was we drew pictures of what we wanted our lives to look like, and it's sort of extraordinary because the pictures tell a lot of the story of what our lives actually look like. So yours has more kids than it's Ten months, years later, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But there was also a lot of stuff that happened in between. Like I had to move. So I had to pack up my house in Harlem and move. And I think I was all good until I got, we finally got the last set of boxes. I drove down, I pull up to her house and I go, oh shit. And I was sitting up there and she was like, what were you doing up there? I said, because I pulled up to your house and I've been coming here for a while. I just noticed you have a white picket fence. I have lost my life. And so it was just those little things of like readjustment because I was like, wow, I've left Harlem, which is just near and dear to me, and now I'm in Bethesda with a white picket fence and some kids. So I will say it probably, it took a minute just I think for all of us, including the kids, to just adjust in terms of what it meant for all of us to be there. And then you finally asked me to marry And then we were on a trip to Arizona to a conference and she actually went out before I did. And I had decided that, um, 
because we'd obviously talked about being married, that I wanted to surprise her because I knew she was thinking, I think it's pretty obvious, she's blue, I'm pink. Expectation was that she would ask me, so I thought I'll surprise her, I'll ask her, because she won't be expecting it. And so the first ring that she wears is the first ring that I gave her. And one of the reasons why I thought about it was because we were going to be on this trip on a reservation, and I thought that would be an amazing place to do it because we both have Native American blood in us. Um, and as it turns out, that actually didn't wasn't a good place to do it. Um, so we got back to the place we were staying, and we went out for a walk in the desert. And then it was it was Halloween. And I was like, "Why are we going for a walk?" I, see, but I was like, well, "See now, I know." But I was like, "Are we going for a walk? We got to get dressed. We got to get ready to party." This was a big thing amongst this group. So we got a party. Like we had costumes we had brought to put on. I was like, "Before we do that, let's go for a walk." So I took her out for this walk in the desert, and I asked her to marry me, and she... I said yes. Said yes, and then didn't speak for 20 minutes. She was kind of catatonic. I was like, oh shit, what am I, did I just say yes? I, we came back to the room, and she says I was rocking back and forth. And I, I think that I was, but I felt like there was a moment where I had left my body, and I was like, I think it was like, this is real now, right? And all that talk, and it was actually gonna be real and this was a group of people that I had known for years and we were going to walk out there and say you know we're engaged and I was like whoa and so I don't think it was about doubt it was just the weight of that like um and that was probably the first time that ever happened right and I called my mom and your sister and my sister and the roomies that's right I, yeah well, and my roommates from college were still very close and they were like that is fabulous and every time I hung up the phone I was like oh my god no first they were like wait a minute who Alessandra well right my mom knew and then we went to the party. Yes. And we told people. Yes. And they were thrilled and happy. But it was, it was yeah. It was, it, was, it was interesting. It was interesting. And I think after we got back, and part of it is she had actually picked out a ring. But the high maintenance person that she is, it wasn't a ring you can buy at a store. So it had to be, we had to get the diamond from Israel. Because it couldn't be a conflict. Diamond. And then ship it over. And then I had to look at it because then our designer was in California. So part of it was she had a pass because there was a ring being made, but it was quite complicated. So then when the ring came, I twisted the tables and our, our daughter, Allie, sing. I said, Allie, we were literally going to a school pizza party. So it was like the most non-romantic, I had on shorts and it was just like, what, people were in our house. We My friend with her five ready. kids were at the house. So we were all like, getting ready to go to pizza. And I was like, Allie, come here, you gotta sing. And I told her friend, I was like, just wait downstairs. And she was like, I don't understand. We just need to go. You know, I don't like going to these things. Let's just go. And I was like, no, no, give some first. She goes, what on earth? And she was just downright angry. As she comes down the steps and Allie's singing, everybody's sitting there. She's like, I don't understand. And I get down on my knee and open up the box. And then she was like, oh, <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> But then that wasn't good enough for me. So then we flew to Brookline, and then I asked her mom if she would give me permission to marry her. I got sick in the bathroom first, but because her mom was like, "Well, you know, do you know what this means?" And she has these kids, and I was like, "I got all that. I got it. I got it." But I was so nervous, I ended up throwing up. But um, yeah, needs to say, we got that far. Yeah, I think that was the first time for me I understood the politics of it all. Was it going to be legal? Was it not going to be legal? What was most important to us? And, and so what was, from a macro context, what, what, where were we going to be safe? Where was it going to be acceptable? And then from the macro context, who was going to show up for us? Um, and I think that was a concern. Like I knew my friends would come, but it was kind of like everybody's making a statement. So we knew we wanted to do a destination wedding. I think that hedged our bets that a lot of people wouldn't come. Of course, that wasn't the case. We had over 60 people show up. We went to the Dominican Republic. 
And at first, we weren't telling her, we're, like, we're just looking for a wedding. And then we finally found someone I think we felt comfortable with, and we said, well, you know, this is a gay. Oh, because they kept saying, well, we'll have to get the preacher. And we were like, well, we don't really need all that because we have our own officiants. And what was her name? Blossom? Magnolia. Magnolia. So, no, and so can she, so, and you think about it, right? We're in the DR. She was clearly of African descent. She couldn't have been more than 25. And she had just been placed in this role as wedding coordinator for this huge resort. So she was excited. When we told her it was us getting married, she was like, this is amazing, of course. You know, she was innovative, a visionary. She knew the world had turned a corner, thought it was great. So she said yes to us. But- and we And we agreed and put down a down payment. And this was four or five months before the actual right. wedding. And then we spent those months negotiating first with that property. First with that property in Dominican Republic. They were actually owned by their their mother company was in Spain, but the office that managed the Dominican Republic was in Mexico. So then we had to negotiate with Mexico. Finally we negotiated with Spain all to let us get have a gay wedding at this property and where and what they agreed to was that they would replace all of the people who worked there for the time of the wedding with people who they knew supported us having a wedding. Because at first they were like, no. And then they realized, okay, we can't say no. That probably won't look good for us. Because, you know, most of our hotels are in Europe. So they said, okay, we'll say yes. But now we need to make sure that we're really paying attention to your safety because... And we had broke the business model, right? Because we had gone above and beyond the required package. We had over 60 people coming. They had three different properties. We were in all the properties. We had taken up all the rooms they needed for pre and post celebration. So I think that there was this political piece, well as this financial piece, like... Oh, okay. We can't just we, we can't just be blown off because you've met all the other hurdles. So we really have to think why we'd say no, and then finally they just said yes. And also realize, wait a minute, there's probably real business in this, right. a vertical we haven't even thought about. So let's take this seriously. Right. So we got married in the Dominican Republic, and it was quite fascinating because we not only were we gay, she was Jewish, so we were like, we want to be on the beach. We have to have a chuppah. We're bringing our own officiants. Um, we're bringing our own music. It was it was like, wow, why would anybody do this? This is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And then the whole before then, because then we had to make sure people knew, like, we were counting on you to hold our safety. And we met with the officiants. Mon- Monica was one of them. Scott was a very dear friend of mine, was the other. And then we had to figure out how to successfully integrate the children so they felt it was important to them. It was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And she was late, of course. So that was a whole other issue. It was like We were late. And I think what was interesting is I also... I think people say like it was probably one of the most traditional weddings that they had ever seen because she had on uh, a Vera Wang white full length trail, whatever you call that, wedding dress. We have pictures. Um, and and I was like, oh my god, this is getting expensive too. Uh, and we would do a newsletter, so we and I was like, oh my god, why did we send to do this like friggin' monthly newsletter to get people there? So, but it was like it really turned into, and it was good because then it became like, all right, I'm past being gay, and then I was kind of like, why do people? Why? And now I know why people elope because it's just expensive. So we did that and we got married. Although total together. cost of our Dominican Republic wedding, wedding ceremony, photographer, seven meals for sixty people, it was expensive. Three thousand dollars. No, no, no. That, that, don't let her fool you. That didn't include the dress or the ring. That's where it's it all true. went awry. But it wasn't that, the dress or the ring, mm-hmm. but it was the, it was the ceremonial space. Seven meals, 60 people. They just got married. They know. They know that's a bargain, honey. Hi, it's me, Cody Elaine Oliver, wife, mama, and co-creator of Black Love. 
I know y'all are loving this conversation, but I wanted to let you know about something our friends over at Shea Moisture Men are doing for Black fathers, and it has me all up in my feelings. I'm gonna go collect myself while they give you some of the sweet details. Shea Moisture Men is committed to celebrating dads daily. As a part of lifting their voices, we created a father's lullaby called Light Inside of You. This lullaby is for us, by us. It is our way of creating our own generational tradition to be passed down father to father. We want to share the voice of love, tenderness, and joy and hope that black dads already share with their babies and with the entire world. Let's normalize and celebrate black love in the form of a father's lullaby. Our story, our song. The world needs to see and hear the love of black fathers. Go to SheaMoisture.com slash men or SheaMoistureMen on IG and listen to a father's lullaby and then challenge a black dad to share his story, his song, by singing the lullaby to his babies and posting it by using the hashtag a father's lullaby. Did y'all get that? SheaMoistureMen is over here being all about black love. So dads, I need you to go over to Shea Moisture Men on IG, and that's S-H-E-A-M-O-I-S-T-U-R-E Men. Shea Moisture Men on IG and record your lullaby. And for all the mamas listening, get the fathers in your life in on this beautiful expression of black love. Oh, several months into our relationship, my mother was critically ill in Africa. She had traveled there for a business trip and her boss had called my sister and said, your mother's critically ill. They think that she's going to die, but I have to leave. And I basically hung up the phone. So my sister who hadn't traveled a lot and I had traveled many times in many places called me and said, you have to go take care of mom. She's in Botswana in the ICU in the one hospital they have in Botswana. So she was at work and I literally got on the phone, booked my ticket, and while I was going to the airport, called her and said, my mom is sick, I have to go take care of her, I need you to take care of the kids, I don't know when I'm coming back. So talk about jumping right into the fire, and I was there for three and a half weeks. Oh, we did just fine. (laughs) But my response to you was? Was go, take as long as you want, don't worry about it, we got this, do what you need to do. And so of course I felt very comfortable going, but it was a trial by fire, but it was also good because without me in the picture, it allowed them to establish relationships without me in a way that wouldn't have happened if I had been there the whole time sort of watching. And right, I remember coming home and they're going, where's mama? I was like, so let me tell you what happened. I said, mama is fine, I'm going to Africa, what do you mean? Where's she going back? We really don't know when she's coming back. And we went through all that, and they're like, is BB going to be okay? I don't know. And I said, but here's what's most important. We are here together. And I listed all the things that I'm good at and all the things that I'm not good at. And I said, so how do we fill the gaps? And everybody jumped in. The girls cooked. By that point, people learned how to do their own laundry. Everybody knew what time they had to go. And we actually made it. When you came back, we were kind of like, oh, you sure? You sure you got to cut? Because we had really established a nice routine. Her sister came and checked on us. We were like, you can go home now. We, we're, we're fine. We got this. During that short time, I think because I like kids a lot, I think the first meeting was awkward because they had sent me a series of questions. And some of them were pretty personal questions. I was like, what kind of kids you got? But I think that's where, you know, I grew up in a traditional black household. Like kids are seen, not heard, you don't talk to adults. So it took a minute to kind of adjust to what her view of parenting was versus what I had been experienced, what I experienced personally. But I think it was good because I did not come in and say, I'm your mom, I'm taking over. I think we went through adjustment periods of like, mm, that doesn't really work for me. 
okay, that, that kind of works for me. And I think we had worked through as adults our compromise and then kind of tried to slowly roll it out. Like I'm a clean freak. So I was like, these book bags everywhere, the shoes, that, that's just not working for me. The when you're going out, who's coming back and playing show for, I'm like, mm, I don't know, we're gonna have a little system around that. So I think it worked well. But prior to getting married, we had talked on the phone one night, like at one o'clock in the morning. And I said, you know, now I've been thinking about it, that if there was something I could do, I would have kids. She was like, well, you know, that's possible. And I was like, well, yes and no. Like, I think I had decided by that point in time, I did not want to have them. But there was something around having, you know, having them be biologically mine and, you know, her having gone to med school. We went this whole thing. So, well, you know, you could have them. You, know, you could, they could be your eggs, but I could carry them. And I was like... I had no idea what she was talking about, but I was definitely touched that she was willing to go that far. So I think always in our mind, that was a possibility. And so I think we were very clear, we need to like all try to blend first and get ourselves together and get grounded. I was still adjusting and coming here and we were just trying to get to know each other and routines. They clearly had a routine that I had to catch on to, vice versa. But I would say then, then it was interesting as we started to explore that, we knew we were getting married at this point. The date was, a few several months out so then we said okay well, we're gonna have kids but let's see what that process is and and I would say yet again it was like this whole political thing because we had gone to one clinic in particular and they said well you know we can't do what you want to do and I said well what do you mean we heard you help gay people all the time and they're like well what you're asking for is different and you have to go to our ethics board and I think what I walked away with is that they were never really comfortable with helping gay couples, but they were able to write it off medically as one cannot have children because they're two gay couples. In fact, they downright told us, we have to prove that you cannot conceive. And then if we prove you can't conceive, then we're willing to trans transplant the eggs. Because of course I had gone in with my medical background saying, I know you can do this. So when they said we don't do that, I was like, well, no, they said we can't. I said, well, you can. So you're telling us you won't. There's a big difference. And they said, well, okay, we won't unless we can prove. And of course, they proved that she was perfectly healthy. And so they refused to do it. And they said, well, you could write a letter to the ethics board to decide. And I was like, well, why does somebody else get to decide if or not we have kids? So, but that was also, I think there was a moment there was like, hmm, this is really tough being gay. Like, like okay, let's just forget about it. We weren't married yet, but we knew we wanted to have kids, and we knew that if we were going to be using fertility technology, it that it was going to take more time. And so, because we were... We were like six, no, we were like... 35, eight, 36 at the time. Eight months out. We were eight months out from being married. So we were getting married in May, and we started this... We were getting May the following year. We started this in the summer. And it was also, <laughs> it was also being me, the planner. It was also like, when did it make sense financially um, in terms of when the baby was going to be born, when all the money was going to be required. So it was also, I said for me, it was also a cash flow issue. <laughs> so, so we got married in May okay. of 2005 and we conceived that right. the babies the, the year later in August. So it's actually, it was actually the flip of what you said. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So we got married. Sorry. Um, but we had started exploring. We started and, before, and, right? And we we got turned down. We spent almost uh, probably eight to nine months exploring. And then we found a doctor who, I remember sitting in his office and I said, listen, I know you can do X, Y, and Z. And he looked at me, he was like, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you know that. Let's figure it out. And he turned, to be, turned out to be amazing well beyond being excited to do it for us because he understood our lifestyle and busyness and travel. And, and in fact, when we actually conceived the babies, she was, I don't know, God knows where, and he had, they had been... No, you were in the vineyard. I know, but I'm saying they had been harvesting eggs from oh. her. And so they had a whole series of eggs, and they, 
they would harvest the eggs and then see if they were viable. And the first few times they were medium viable, but they didn't really love them. And then found a batch that were viable. And because I typically was on the road at least once or twice a month. And you were in California yep. and I was in Martha's Vineyard and they called us and said, okay, tomorrow you need to show up at the clinic and we're going to do this. And we were both like, we're not even there. And he said, I've been very patient. I've let you go all over the world, but tomorrow is the day you come home. So I flew in from the vineyard. She flew in from California. We met at the clinic. And something that we probably should have thought about and known more about was he said, okay, we have nine viable embryos. How many should we implant? And I was like, well, let's be clear. I'm a fertile mortal, right? We already have four, although one is adopted. So, and, and this he, is where we had the big debate. And he said, well, we can put in one, but if it doesn't take, then we've got to do this again. And it's $20,000 a pop. If we put in two, then, head. right, then, you know, probably we'll get, a, you know, there's a 50-50 chance. He, he said, but if I were you, I'd put in three. But the trick was, or the trick, the little wrinkle was that Alessandra, and I don't know if either, but I think does not believe in selective reduction. So I knew that if all three took, we were about to have triplets and there was no way out. And that was a little challenging for me. Because I was like, we don't need seven. We don't need no reality show. We don't need no eight kids. We actually do need seven, which is no, why we're going to no, have one more. No, we're not. Anyway, so we ended up agreeing on three. So we implanted three. You got on the plane back to the vineyard. Um, actually, first we went back to the house, remember, because right. yep. we were laying there. And I remember saying to her, they've implanted. She was like, what are you talking about? And I said, I can just feel it. It's like a little twinkle. I know. So I went back to the vineyard. I couldn't tell anybody. Was there? You were off. You went back to California. I was in the vineyard. We kind of did her thing, came back several days later. And then I guess at about five weeks, I started to bleed. And so we thought we had lost all of the babies. As it turned out, we had lost one of the three. Mm-hmm. And so we went in, actually not knowing how many had implanted at the time. And I knew, but we hadn't seen proof of it. And then we went in and, and the doctor said, well, there are two healthy heartbeats here, so. Woohoo. So well, that's not what I asked for. I wanted one. He said, well, that's what you got. I said, and that's it? He said, that's it. But that's all? He said, that's it? You got two. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yep. It's a happy time. Yep. <laughs> We didn't tell them at oh, first. Over the moon. And then when we did tell them, we actually created scavenger a scavenger hunt. hunt throughout the whole house. So they we, they literally went on this hour-long scavenger hunt. And then the final clues. clue was that they were going to have brothers or sisters or one of each. And they jumped up and down. They screamed. Oh, my God. They screamed so loud. And then they finally and they go, what took y'all so long? And I was like, what do you mean? What took y'all so long? It's not like we, we had to make sure we had space. There was room. It was planning required. Well, it's funny because when... When Monica was doing our pre-marriage counseling with us, we had she said, "What are the what's important to you?" And we said, well, "We know right away we want to get married, buy a house, and have kids." And she was like, "Whoa, you have to do one at a time. You have to space those things like six to nine months apart each." So we had gotten married, we bought the house, so we were you know well on our way to the to the kids, making more babies. But they were ecstatic. They were ecstatic. So it was good. So no children are wonderful and delightful all the time. I was about to say, it depends on the day. Particularly not when they're teenagers. So I would say that we're, we're blessed because we have incredible children, but it's not an easy road. And it's, it's not an easy road to be married. It's not right. an easy road to, change, to raise children, period. And when you add in all the other factors, some days it feels impossible, but we... I think we have, we're also blessed because we have great family. Right, so I think that there were clearly times where I would say, this is too much. Like, oh my God, what have I signed up for, right? Because I would think back, like, 
how do I manage situations? I'm saying, what do I do? In the oh, in the past, I didn't have to because I never had people to worry about. So I would say that we also have great friends and family who would come over and say, I'm hearing you guys need a date night. I'm hearing you need a weekend away. I'm hearing you just need me to come for a couple hours and watch the kids. Monica, again, her wedding present was more therapy. So I think that th there was those moments where I think where we are unique is that most families, three things, are afraid to say anything. And people never know what's really happening. We have no problem saying we need some help. Two, I think they don't have a support system because if they ask for help, then there's a sign of weakness and the parents and the in-laws start making all assumptions and no one ever asks any questions. It didn't matter what was happening. We asked for help, they showed up. And I think the third piece was we're always honest with the kids. And, you know, they would say, well, you know, it seemed like you're having a bad day or what's going on. And I think we would say this is hard, right? And I think we would say that because we also knew it was hard for them, right? That there were things they were going through, like, and sometimes it was sad and sometimes it was funny. Like Gabriella went to middle school, I think it was, mm -hmm. and she went to school and we lived in, at the time we lived in Bethesda in the Bannockburn neighborhood, everybody knows everybody. So the only thing was everybody knew our business, right? Everybody knew most of the gay people and the Jewish people with all these kids. And Gabriella goes to school and we come home and we say, you know, how was your day? She goes, it was good, it was good. And so then you said, what would you talk about? And they, she said, well, I told them that I was black. I told them that we have six kids in our family. And I told them that you guys were gay. She said, but I didn't tell them that we were Jewish. Can I wait for tomorrow to tell them that? And I think that it was a sign that we knew we were different, but we were comfortable in that difference. And we were willing to say, it doesn't really matter with the rest of the world. So I think in that way, we're, we were unique in that I think we have a support that other people don't have. What was the same I think people were surprised by is when they would bring their friends or particular boys up, like, don't come in here with your hat on and pull your pants up. And these would be white boys. I'm like, don't be rolling up in here looking like that. And I think they were like, oh man, like your parents are stricter than mine. And I think parents would say like, we had a whole scheduling system. Our house, because we had babies, parents would drop their kids off on Friday night. And we would say, if you're a little tipsy or you want to stay out longer, your kids are welcome to come over. And I think that surprised people that we were the probably the most normal family in the neighborhood and we were the most trusted family. And we had a system where if kids wanted to go somewhere, we had a form they had to fill out and they had to get the form to one of us. And they, and they, because we didn't want to be played. So they'd be like, I texted mom and she said yes. I texted Melissa, she said yes. No, we need to know where the form is. You couldn't make plans less than 24 hours in advance. And we would call the parents and say, are you going to be home? Is there a party happening? And they'd be like, oh my God, I'm mortified. And parents would come to say, what's your system? Because it seems to be working. Because other kids' parents, you know, they were sneaking off at night or they were doing all kinds of other and crazy stuff. And that was stuff. through senior year in high school. They would fill that social request form. Yeah. And if they go, they go to a friend's house, it could be a friend they've had for 10 years. And we'd We're be still on the calling. phone, just calling Anita to make sure that Gabriel and Naomi will be there tonight. And they're yeah. not going out afterwards, or they are going out afterwards. And who's going to pick them up? How are they getting home? And that, I think, the, ultimately, the, the kids felt good about that because the other kids would be like, well, your parents actually really care. So I think in that case, we surprised people and they were probably more leave it to beaver-ish in terms of like, what are our kids doing? Where are they going? We have homework time. People would say, well, what do you mean? They'd say, come on, like, oh, it's five o'clock, it's homework time. And they'd be like, what's your mom talking about? It's homework time. Put your butt in the chair and break out your homework. Well, can I listen? Nope, no TV, no phones, no nothing. And so I think in that case, many people were like, you guys are like the normal family as opposed to the gay family that we're afraid of. Um, our house got toilet paper like everybody else's house. So yeah, I think we lived through pretty normal stuff. So I think in that way, 
we're normal and that we have very, despite being raised by single parents, we have very, I think, traditional family views, either because it's what we got to see externally or what we thought in our mind was supposed to be. And then I think the fact that we're gay and we've got a blended family, it adds its complications, but because we're open and have help, I think that's made a difference. Well, you know, I was going to say that I think one of, the, one of the things that has mattered the most for us has been that Melissa's family truly loves me and cares about me, even days when they didn't care about her, because we all get mad, right? And my family truly loves and cares about Melissa, even days when they didn't care about me, right? And so, you know, we talk about, I mean, almost in a casual way, but having that support, there is a level of, of, of love and commitment um, that helps to uphold us, mm -hmm. all of us, and keep us all accountable, right? So when we're feeling cranky or want to say something nasty or the kids feel upset or what have you, that they're held by a whole host of people who say, we know all of the truth of everything. And the, at the bottom of that truth is that you're well and deeply loved by your two parents. So. I think that's the other thing that was interesting to me about Jewish weddings, that they call on the community to uphold you. And we made that loud and clear at our wedding, that you weren't invited because we thought you'd have fun in the sun, but you were invited because we have people that we can count on. And I will say, Scott, thank you for lucky we see each other once every two years, but he's just a gifted guy. And he's like, I'm just sending you positive vibes, my sister. I feel like you may need it right now. I'm like, whoa, brother, you just don't know. And so I think even if, even not like everybody's in your business, just knowing that it exists. Um, and I would also say it was also us holding our friends account. My friends, none of my friends are in blended family relationships. None of them are gay that I know of. A lot of them aren't married, but they just, they've gone off to do other stuff. And so having them, they were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. But this is what I'm gonna do. And I think many of them in the beginning were like, do you know what the hell you're doing? And I was like, no, but you know, love is blind. And they were always there regardless. And so I will say there were, I think there were times they were like, they probably could have easily said, well, you should just roll out. You know, like that just seems like a lot. Like, I don't know, I told you. And they were like, okay, well, why are you there from the beginning? And I think that's huge, right? That, that particularly for my group of friends who are all single in the city, it was huge for them to be able to step outside themselves and any issues they may have had with me or her, us, and say, at the end of the day, I want you to be happy. And to this day, they always go, before we, y'all happy? You happy? Y'all happy? Great, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. No judgment, I think, was key. So I said I was a clean freak. Um, I'm a time freak. So I believe being on time is 15 minutes early. Mm. But as long as you're there 15 minutes after the appointment started, that's what, see, that's what they believe. Professionally, I'm 10 minutes early. But socially is what I care about. That's what I care about socially. We, we travel a lot, and so she would bring like a bag of shoes. I said, no, no, babe, you got to get down to one bag. And so the day she showed up with one bag, I jumped up at that. I said, you love me. You <laughs> truly love me. And this is before they started charging for luggage. So I think, I think honestly, those are probably the, the things that I think bothered me the most that she actually resolved. I think now getting on my nerves, I, I know it's gonna be hard for you. I really can't think of anything in particular. I think it's just like little stuff, but I have to say like, I think most of the big things, like I travel a lot. I used to travel a lot and there was a lot to work through, right? It was trust issues. It was, you're not here. It was carrying the weight. And I think we work through that. So I think it seems odd, but we also developed this thing that every day we say, I love you and I'm all in. 
And that means that whatever happens, I'm all in. And I will say that that has certainly helped me. But there are things where dishes in the sink, because I believe in everything being clean before you go to sleep. No, I'll clean in the morning. Clothes in the basket not being folded. Well, I'm going to fold into, I think the tomorrow thing, mm, like little things around the house, I'm going to get to it. Well, the punch list is just getting longer. I think those things bother me because I'm very much like, let's get it done now or whatever. She also likes to relax. I'm not really big on relaxing. So like I'm the one that runs the kids to American Girl Dial. I'm the one, let's go out and hang out. She's like, I just want to lay down on the couch and Which read. is funny because probably in the last year, I've probably actually relaxed for 10 total hours. It seems longer. So in my mind, right, I have this fantasy that I'm gonna get to relax. But in truth, is, as much as she's blue and I'm pink, everything that needs to be done in the house, it's I do. responsibility. Light bulbs change, if something breaks, all of that is something is stuff that I handle. So I actually don't, I think the reason why I talk about relaxing is because I don't get to do it a lot. But I would say probably the number one thing that irritates her now is that I love her unconditionally. And I think that's still terrifying. And she'll say that. But that's not annoying. That's just unnerving. It's a difference. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Right, but that's a difference. Like you annoy me when you leave stuff out. Like like when we, like we eat dinner. Like yesterday we had takeout, and like I, she's like, "Well, I'm going up to bed," and I walked. I said, "Let me just walk into the kitchen." I walked into the kitchen. Dishes in the sink, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I want you to know that last night the kitchen was spotless no, no, no. when I went upstairs. No, 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 the dishes were in the sink. I put them in the dishwasher. So I'd say it's those little things. So that's different. So what annoys me is like those little things. Mm. But also because I am um, visually impaired, there are literally things I actually don't see that she'll see. So she'll see, say like, didn't you see all those crumbs? And I can say I actually literally didn't see the crumbs. But I'm, 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 the, I'm the lover in the house, right? So I will stop anything to cuddle you, hug you, love you up, dry your tears, check in with you, make sure okay, everything gets dropped for, for people's hearts. So with so many people to take care of, if I have to choose between putting the dishes away or having like a great snuggle before bedtime, I'm gonna choose the snuggle every day. And I'm gonna put the dishes away so that I can lay there and relax. Cause otherwise I'm like, we've left this stuff out. There's gonna be bugs. It's just, it's just, they call me monk and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I have wet ones in my car. Seriously, okay when she that. pumps gas, she gets in the car and I hand her away. You know, I'm okay with that. You know, I think that after 10 years of marriage, it's, it's weird to talk about what annoys me because I think at this point, there's either the stuff that we've worked through or the stuff that's just gonna be, right? So I think it's, it's, it's more the ways in which we're different. So, I mean, I, mean, I and I think that it, it, it's, it's the same conversation, right? That, that what, what we negotiate most frequently around is, is the priority here loving up or the dishes? And I think that the way we've worked that through is that I'll love up and she'll do the dishes. And so we're okay. So the big one was when I met her, I sat on like 19 boards. And in a very active role, not as a casual observer. She was like the finance officer, the chair of 19 boards of directors. And that's mostly what I did. And I was an investor and I traveled around. And so I was gone three times a month at least. And, and so she made me on the floor with a piece of paper, probably as big as this room, write down all my boards, how many hours I sat on them, how many, how many hours a month, what my role is, how long I've been, how much does it cost that I give, how much does it cost me to travel, do I get anything from it, and made me cut it down like in half. And that was painful, because I was like, you're messing up my life, like now you're trying to change me. But that was a big issue, because in the end I realized 
If I hadn't done that, we wouldn't have had a successful marriage and we certainly wouldn't have a successful family whatsoever. But I think that was a big issue, just how I managed my time because I typically had only been accountable to myself. So holding me accountable to a group of people was a big issue for me. And I think one of our greatest learnings as, a, as humans and as a married couple is that you really have to think through what is it about the other person that is their essence that you're going to learn to accept or love or work with versus what are you going to say this must change. I think those ultimatums in relationships, when you love somebody and they give you an ultimatum, you think, okay, I'm really gonna do this. I'm gonna be different, I'm gonna do it differently. But if it's not your essence, you keep messing up over and over again and it creates this drama and unhappiness and hurt feelings. And so I would say that probably one of our greatest learnings has been to say, I get this is who you are. Not, and I love every, every piece of it, but I get this is who you are, so let's, let's negotiate about how you can be that, and it can feel tolerable for me at the least, and actually enjoyable for me at the best. I've also learned how to make fun of the other person with their issues, so we laugh a lot. We laugh a lot. Like, we'll be out all day, dog tired, like last night, fell asleep on the couch, and she said, you gonna go upstairs and take a shower. I said, I sure am. I take a shower every morning and every night, no matter what. It could, the shower, we could be, it'd be two o'clock in the morning, I'm gonna take another one at six. That's just my routine. And so she laughs at me and my routines. Yeah. I think what's all- And I laugh at you because every time you come home, first you put on a Kong and a t-shirt. I'm like, are you going to bed? Are we done for tonight? Right. No, but that's what I'm gonna do when I'm in my house. So right, it's comfortable. But it's a wrap, like a pareo. You know, every, every country has this. Brazil, strong, yes, that's wrong. Yeah, strong. But also I think what's helpful is that with this set of twins is that Mackenzie is exactly like me and Maddie is exactly like her and they prefer the opposite. So Maddie is very attached to me and Mackenzie is very attached to Melissa. And so there are so many things that we have learned from each other that help us love that child better and so many more things we learn from those children that help us love each other better. I will implant one at a time. I want one more child. And, 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 and I will say this. That, that, that the first time we had talked about having two or three more children, which is why it made sense to implant two or three embryos. I don't remember all that. I'm perfectly clear that one is the limit. And so I would be very respectful of that. And so I would only implant one because if we implanted three and we had three, then we'd have I'm out, I'm out. That is a deal breaker. I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, yep. And I know that. Yep, that's too many, I'm too old. But I will say I think we've grown in the past eight years because Mackenzie is she's like she is like very close to me and she'll do something like oh my god it's just like Alessandra right like forget stuff or walk in can close the door we don't live in the barn oh right or you know walk outside and just be woo, free and like you know I'm not in a hurry to get anywhere I'll be like oh my god you're just like you are the mother and then I'd look at Maddie and be like, oh, now I understand how hard it is to love me because you are a pain in the ass sometimes. You want things your way when you want it right now. So it's been helpful. I think, so I, I would say, I, I think the, the dreams have been fulfilled, that we are at a place where I can say we are happy and healthy, that I think the kids get to see that, that I now know what it means to be a parent and to be a spouse. And now it's really less about a dream, but how to actualize things we desire and I think would make us better. So being able to take this younger set of twins and live abroad, 
as the world has dramatically changed. I think for me, dreams were getting married, having kids, and having a house, and it was the American dream, and we can check the box on that. I think dreams are my mom, who's 87, that's just lived every time she gets to spend time with them. Um, I think we have kids, the older kids who have graduated and have jobs. Woohoo! Doesn't get much better than that. And so I think, I think it's hard for me to separate that out because I think what I know many of my friends are still aspiring for, we can check the box on that. So I think it's just being able to continue to live comfortably, safely. I think we have been very blessed that we have been able to celebrate all of the political and Supreme Court wins with our family and they understand that has been huge. I think we didn't necessarily talk about it, but the dream that when the children were born, we had to fight to get it in the state of Maryland, you couldn't have same-sex parents. And so we created case law where we have now met families who say, oh, you're the Bradley Burns family. Yeah, we used your case so that we could be on the birth certificate of our kids. I don't think there's much more to do other than that, right? And it's not because we wanted to, it's because you have to, but I think it's those subtleties where you're like, it made our life better, but that's kind of cool that it made other people's lives better. At this point, I just want to die peacefully. That's really it. That's it, just die peacefully. I want to be traumatic. You got a long way to go. We'll say I don't ask. You know, I think I would answer that a little differently with lots of overlap, clearly. We have been incredibly blessed and we have fought very hard for what we have in terms of resources, what we have in terms of family and the peace that we have in our family, um, in terms of our marriage and having this kind of marriage, it has not always been easy and there have been many times it has seemed literally impossible. And I am somebody who thinks you can teach organic chemistry to a monkey. Like everything is possible. But there have definitely been moments where we thought we just cannot see the way. And what has upheld us is the belief that even when you can't see the way, there's a way. And the fact that sort of that right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right, just Let's, let's just stay in it for today. When you start thinking weeks and months and years ahead, it becomes overwhelming. So how do we get through today knowing that we love each other? And sometimes how do we get through this minute <laughs> knowing that we love each other? And sometimes I feel like we're on the other side of that and we're ready to do whatever is necessary. And then the universe, of course, is ever wise. And she'll present an opportunity for us to learn once again, where's your rededication? Where is, is this the opportunity where you're going to look at each other and say, this is hard, it's painful, I'm terrified? But we're still in this, right? We are still all in on this day. So I see us continuing to grow in that way. We obviously have plans to be overseas. So I, I, I love, I, I sort of see the sense of like risk and discovery because we had to work so hard for the basics um, where other people get to take in, sort of take for granted the foundation. Um, and in fact, Musa wears three rings and their faith, family and foundation. And foundation is the last one, and people always say, oh, that should have been the first. But we really have to fight for that foundation. And now that we've done that fighting, now in some ways, even though we've been married for 10 years, now it seems like we actually get to start saying, with this foundation, what will we do? Where will we go? What is next? What is possible? And how will we support each other? And, and you know, we even professionally, we've had some shifts. I was home for a while with the kids, and Melissa was out ruling the world. Well, now... She's a professor running a program. I'm CEO of a company. So even that shift, right? What does that feel like? What does that look like? How do we navigate and negotiate that? For us as a couple, as individuals, and certainly as a family, what does that look like and feel like? So I think that there's, there's this time of risk and learning that we are entering that I feel very excited about. So I was at a dinner the other day at that event for the women entrepreneurs. Right. And there was somebody there who'd just been married, I think three months. And I was there 
I was the only gay person there. And a couple of people had been there, but they were much older. Like they were like in their 70s. They'd been married like 30 years. So the woman said, what is it? And one, oh, one woman, so the other sister was engaged. And they had been, they had known each other for less than a year, but they were getting engaged like in five months. I mean, getting married in five months. And they said, what are your secrets? And it was funny because all the older, they were all white women. All the older white women like joked and said, well, I have a gun and you know, again, I was like, well, that's not really helping them. <laughs> and somebody else says, well, he lives on one coast. I live on the other. I was like, that is not good advice. <laughs> like what the hell? And there, and you could see the two women were like, oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> and they said, what about you? And I said, well, I said, um, there's three things that we do. I said, we have date night at least once a month. And that's like, actually I should say date weekend. We have a staycation once a month. We have this saying of I'm all in and we focus on the day, which means that whatever happens that day, it begins and it ends and we don't carry it to the next day. Um, and I said, and we are committed to being honest. I said, but in a respectful way so that we don't call each other up and I'll say, you know what, that really bothers me. Can we just like, can we work through that? And I said, so there's a level of transparency that is based in respect. I said, because lots of times you won't say stuff because you get hurt to the person's feelings. And they were like, wow, that's deep. And the one woman said, hmm, maybe if my husband and I had that, we wouldn't live on different coasts. And I was like, well, that's between the two of you. <laughs> so those are my tips. I would say that that, that weekend that we go away once a month um, is magical for a million reasons, whether you have children or not, because you're out of your house, right. so you're out of the stuff of the house, right? The water faucet that leaks, the groceries that have to be the done. Dishes. The, the dishes for us, right? And just transporting yourself someplace else so that it, I think it opens up the sense of possibility. For us, obviously, because we have a lot of children, one of the rules of our time when we have those times is that we don't talk about the kids. We only talk about each other and the world or work, whatever it is, but just not the kids. So we can just be fully ourselves. And there's a way, and we also, technology is left behind. So there's a way that we focus. And I think one, one of the most magical things probably is, is that not only do we rediscover one, each other as a couple, but we discover ourselves. So there's sort of a moment of reading an article in a magazine and thinking, oh, Oh, there's this exhibit I'd really love to see. That if we were on an, in our normal mode of like technology and running and kids and work and all that, wouldn't even stop to read the, the, the article. Um, and, and, and so that I think is so significant. And um, whenever we share that we do that with people, they always take a step back and think, what would the impact be? And it's so, it's such a simple thing to do. I also think that we tend to grow up in a world that is very, um, Disposable. So, right, we have disposable plates and and forks and knives and cups, and we get used to throwing things away, and relationships are part of those things that we throw away. When they feel hard, we think, okay, this is too hard, and you can always find a friend to back you up that it's too hard, or that the other person is a jerk, or that they don't care about you. Or... So it's, one, making sure you have people who are really with you to say, mm -mm, I'm not gonna make that easy for you. I will not be the person to tell you, yes, he's a jerk, yes, she's an idiot. Um, I'm going to remind you why you love each other. And if that comes in the form of family, friends, religious community, whatever it is, that you commit to having people actively in your lives who will support your marriage to one another. You cannot do it without it. And then also acknowledging that, particularly because for, for you, you're newlyweds, you don't have to like each other to love each other. And don't confuse the two. And in the moments where you truly feel like you hate the other person, or you can't stand them, or you're just so over them, reminding yourself that the two are very separate. And because you, you're married because you love them, not because you like them every day. And, and, and that's okay. 
because that's the way of the world. And it's, it's, it's funny because it is a, it's a freedom we give our friends, but we rarely give our spouses. And it's been transformational for our kids because several of them are special needs, they're learning disabled, and so they're used to people telling them no, or that's not right, or you're wrong. And so we're very clear to make it separate that I will always love you unconditionally, but I may not like you in that moment. So when the girls fight, we're like, I don't really like that behavior. We don't want them to internalize that because I think in some ways we both grew up with people labeling us or telling us not positive things. Like you're never going to be this. And you own it as if it is your own as opposed to a unique moment in time based on a set of circumstances. And so I think watching how powerful it's been for the girls say, I don't like that behavior, but I still love you has really had an impact on how they take that in when good when people don't say good things to you. And I would say that was probably one of the hardest things for me because I was grown up in places where you know, my mom would yell at me, it was generational. People at school told me, you're not, you're not all that, you're never gonna get into Georgetown. And I internalized that and it actually had an impact on my self-esteem that externally I was like, I don't really care, but I cared deeply. And so when we first met and she would critique me, I'd be like, I would be devastated. I'd be like, oh, it's not worth it. I forget it, it's not, you don't like me. And that was transformational to be able to make that distinction that I may not like the way you put the dishes away, or I may not like the way you put them together, but it doesn't mean that I've stopped loving you. And I think for people growing up in single parent houses in particular, where you only have one person, it's a huge risk and a high level of vulnerability to transfer that amount of power that someone has over you in terms of how they care for you and love you.